we are considering the fruit of wisdom in the book of James. But before I get there, let me lay a foundation for you from the book of Kings. God puts no premium on wisdom that is merely confessional, creedal, or culturally determined. That is wisdom that is on the lips, but is not evident in the life and conduct of that person. I read uh, last week, and I believe it's true, that wisdom is a commodity that is really sought after. Absolutely. We may pray for it, but we, not, we don't dig for it, pursue it. As if it is riches. It is highly prized. But not pursued. In our arrogance we think that we have the, our lives in the palm of our hands. And we do not need wisdom from above. We got it all figured out. Why do I need to ask God for any help? Why do I need wisdom in my life? On the other spectrum, we have a man who was born into everything. Son of a king, born into riches. Had a period of peace, which meant he didn't have to worry about any wars. Such a man, his name is Solomon. Needed nothing. The Foundation for his kingdom has been laid by his father David. What a good example to follow. What can you, what can you mess up? I mean, David's your father. All you have to do is do what he did. 1 Kings chapter 3. Listen to what the text says. Verse 3. Solomon loved Yahweh, walking in the statutes of his father David. Only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. Um, we can deal with that when we preach that passage. Solomon followed his father David, loved God, worshipped God, prioritized God. What do you need? He needs nothing. Absolutely nothing. Yet it is God that comes to him in verse 5. At Gibeon, Yahweh appeared to Solomon in a dream by night and said, Ask what I shall give you. That is a very weird way to ask a question. Ask of me what I've already determined what I'm going to give. Now, folks, God does not come to you in dreams anymore. He's not going to be appearing tonight and asking you, ask what I shall give you. If he does, call me up, doesn't matter what time it is, because there's a problem. I love Solomon's response. 
Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your, your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, in an uprightness of heart toward you. If you take note of that, it appears later on as well. And he and you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. In other words, Lord, you have been steadfast to my father. And now, O Yahweh, my God, you have made your servant king in place of David, my father, as a high respect for his father. Notice what he says. Although I am but a child, I don't know how to go out or come in. He's a grown man. And he says, I'm but a child. I don't even know left from right, Lord. I'm confused. In other words, it's a cry for help. Verse 9. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people. That I may discern, and you could put in and there because it is proper. And that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to, discern, uh, to govern this, your great people? One thing that Solomon desired of God is an understanding mind and the ability to, to, to discern right from wrong. Every leader in the church of God should probably be praying this. What a request. Lord, grant wisdom. Because I need it. I don't even know how to go out or come in. I've got no control over those elements of my life. So I need your wisdom to guide me. I need your wisdom, your understanding, so that I can make the right choices in life. Why? So that I may govern rightly your people. Notice what God says to him, verse 11. And God said to him, because you have asked this, and have asked not for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies. But you have asked for yourself understanding to, to discern what is right. Behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that no none like you so that no, none like you has been before you, and none like you shall come after you. So God gives him wisdom and discernment. What did he ask for? That exact thing. Lord, grant me wisdom to govern your people. God says, okay, I'm going to give it to you. But look down at verse 16. Then Two prostitutes came to the king and stood before him. And you know the story. One said, this is my child. The other one said, no, it is my child. And Solomon is faced with a dilemma. 
whose child is this? How do I answer these people? And he came up with a brilliant idea. Bring a sword. I will cut the baby in half. So you get half and she gets half. Problem solved. That's wisdom. Hmm. So we think, right? It is. Because he knew by God's grace through the wisdom that he was provided that the true mom would rather save the child and give it to the other mom than see her own child die. And so through the circumstance, God demonstrates the wisdom that he has granted to Solomon. Now I want you to think about that. What did Solomon pray for? Wisdom. What did God give him? A circumstance to demonstrate the wisdom that God has already granted to him. Did you catch that? When you ask for wisdom, what should you expect? Wisdom? No. An opportunity to demonstrate the wisdom that he has given. James chapter 1 verse 5. I was burning at the bits. I don't know if that's an idiom. I just made it up. To get to make this connection to Solomon because I saw it. Four years ago, so God provides wisdom when, he, when you ask of him, but also provides an opportunity for you to what? Demonstrate that wisdom. James 1 verse 5. If any one of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all, that is all who ask of him, without re reproach. And it will be given to him. In other words, he's going to give you what you ask. What's the context here? Trials, suffering, affliction, hardship. James says, if you don't know how to honor the Lord in your affliction, ask for wisdom. What is he going to give you? An opportunity to demonstrate that he's answered your prayer and either keep you in the trial or bring another trial so that you can demonstrate the wisdom that he has given you. All that to say, be careful what you ask for. Because you will receive. God provides wisdom. Here's the thing. God provides wisdom to his people. This is not wisdom that is available to everyone that asks. It is only available to those who belong to God. Why? Because this wisdom honors God. In James chapter 3 verse 13 through to 18, we have considered wisdom and understanding. James opens the section by asking this question, who is wise and understanding among you? Well, if you are, then do this. By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of 
wisdom. In other words, let him demonstrate the fact that he has received wisdom. We've spent a little time on verse 17, just a couple of weeks. And this week is no different. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. I don't know about you, but this has been a really sanctifying period in my life. It's been painful to study this and to preach it to you. I hope that this text is making inroads into your heart and life as well. This morning, we continue to look at wisdom and we begin by focusing on the second group. Now, if you weren't here before, let me just take some time to explain that there are three groups in this passage. The first group being peaceable, um, gentle, and open to reason. And then James clusters two words together which qualify this word full. So it is full of mercy and good fruits. So that's the second group. And then a third group, which are kept together, which is impartial and sincere. The first group relates to the external components of wisdom. The second group relates to the personal possession and experience of worship. And then the third group relates to the interpersonal aspects of worship. These are all demonstrations of worship. All Indicative of the fact that you possess worship. James is not saying, well, ask God for worship. No, if you are wise, then these things must be true of you. So the wise then produce in this context, in verse 17, produce mercy and good, good fruit. That will be our attention this morning. Mercy and good fruits. These are two interesting elements chosen by James. Some commentaries only have one line, one sentence, or just glance right over it. Yet there's tremendous theological weight behind these two statements. One relates to the character of God, and the other relates to the words of Jesus. And so I'm going to pause and show you the significance of both of these. They are strange inclusions. If you listen to everything else, they relate to interpersonal relationships. Peaceable, gentle, open to reason impartial and sincere, or relate to how we relate to other people. Yet full of mercy and good fruits is almost inward looking. That is true, but there's an outward component as well. Hopefully I get to that. So let's consider these two elements. And as we approach this passage, James wants us to understand that wisdom is visible in a person who possesses mercy and good fruits. That's my point. So if you leave with anything else, I've missed my whole point of the preaching. I won't put that on you. Often when you pick up commentaries and they speak about full of mercy and good fruits, I'm highlighting this as, um, as a unit together because I noticed this quite a while ago that often what commentators do is that they focus only on the external element, only on how it looks in relation to people. And I'm going to give you some examples. Listen to this. One author says, quote, 
Laxin impoverishes the, impoverishes the soul and needs to be covered and forgiven. So poverty of the world needs to be alleviated by any and every means, end quote. That's in relation to full of mercy and good fruits. I have no idea how they got to that. Another author says, quote, James provides his own definition of mercy. It is that love for neighbor that shows itself in action, end quote. And that sounds really nice. I don't see that, though. This is a well-known author. A familiar Christian, uh, familiar Christian writer says, quote, Christian pity is not merely an emotion, it is action. We can never say that we have truly pitied anyone until we have given our help, end quote. You can see where it's going, right? The external demonstration of mercy ministry. Let's just help anyone and everyone in any way we can. One more, one more. Quote, mercy and fruit go together. That is, it is the practical mercy in concern for the suffering that manif manifests itself in arms. End quote. You hear the colored coming out there. Manifest. Interesting. All of these are focused on mercy ministries. All of these tell you what you should do for the poor, regardless of who the poor are. All of these look outward. Now there is an abuse with this problem as well. I'll try to stand still. As I go looking for water. The abuse is that there are those who are so concerned about winning the favor of the world and changing the social economic structure of the world that they would do anything and everything to win the favor of the world. They are intent on changing the world and so... This gives them permission to pursue the world. Mercy and good fruits. And so mercy is interpreted as demonstration of mercy to a lost and dying world. Good fruits is a demonstration of goodness to a lost and dying world. Here's the problem with that. Doing good to people does not build a bridge to the gospel. It does not. How many good people are there in the world who give to missions that just go build roads and put up houses and dig some holes but have no fruit of gospel ministry amongst those people? Recently I heard that Alistair Big, I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt, it may be AI that, that generated this conversation. If it is, nothing to worry about. If it's not, then listen carefully. He says that in asked, being asked this question, should a Christian grandmother attend her grandson's Tron's wedding. 
The answer is simple, right? It should be. If you're struggling with that, there's a bigger problem. The answer is very simple. The answer is no. Why? Because your commitment and devotion to Jesus Christ is far more important than winning the favor of the world. You, did Jesus not say that I have come to bring a sword between father and son, mother and daughter? Why is it that we choose the side of the world over the side of righteousness? It's become so easy to compromise. It's become so easy to say for the sake of loving my grandson, I will attend the wedding and give him a gift. Because I love him. That's a an abomination of a marriage before God. Why then would you encourage a person to go to that? That is not a marriage. James is not giving us permission to compromise, but stating the reality that is inherent to those who are wise. They are merciful, but not compromising. They have good fruits, but not for the sake of the gospel. So what James is after here is that the content of the heart is made manifest in the content of one's walk. If you are willing to compromise the gospel for the sake of winning favor with somebody, there is a bigger problem that you have in your heart. So I pray that this is just an AI-generated um, clip that is perpetuated on the internet. But if not, then Alistair Begg needs to repent of his sinful advice to a loving grandmother. The most loving thing she could do for her grandson is to love him by sharing the gospel with him, not attend the wedding. Let me restate the proposition this way. The possession of mercy and goodness is made manifest in mercy and goodness. It's that simple. If you possess it, you should demonstrate it. Not as that give us a right to just pursue anyone. I don't even think that that is what James is after. So let me prove that. Okay, look at verse 17. But the wisdom from above is first. And that's a state of reality. This is what it is. So he's describing what wisdom is. And so he says it is first pure. We looked at that. Then peaceable, gentle, open to reason. And then wisdom is full of mercy and good fruits. So he's stating the reality of what wisdom is in its possession. I looked up this word fullness. And you know what it means? Fullness. Spent a lot of time reading it up and I was like, yeah, it just means full. There is a, a nuance though with regards to fullness. Let me explain this. What James is saying is that wisdom is, and you've got this list of adjectives, and here they are. The list of adjectives include pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full, impartial, and sincere. Full is the adjective. Sorry, is the noun. And it's being modified by two other adjectives, which is mercy and good fruits. So James has in mind that 
whatever is the, whatever this fullness is, it's seen in mercy and good fruit. So what does fullness mean? So if you think of a jar being emptied into another, that's literally the essential meaning is to fill something else. But it can be used figuratively to speak of someone that has something in their heart and they are dominated by that thing. And so it's manifest to others. Romans chapter 1 verse 29. Let me read it. You don't have to go there. Listen to what Paul says. They are filled, different word, with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, and malice. That's what's in their heart. They are full, same word as in James, of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. Look at the result. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolishness, faithful, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give hearty approval to those who practice them. Paul uses his word full to demonstrate a heart that is dominated and debased by sinful passions, sinfulness. It's full of sinfulness, and so it makes itself evident in how it hates God and demonstrates its sinfulness in unrighteousness. That is the word full used in James as well. Whatever is present in the heart will be made manifest in reality. So the fullness is something that is possessed before it is practiced. Make sense? It is first an inward reality before it is seen in a practical responsibility. This is important. In order for you to show mercy and good fruits, you first need to have the fullness of mercy and good fruits. So what do we need to possess in order for us to show mercy and good fruits? Well, it's very simple. Mercy and good fruits. Unbelievers can also be engaged in works of mercy and good works. Unbelievers can do the same thing. That does not come from a heart that is filled with mercy and good fruits, though. So if James is only talking about the external reality that is seen in the world, that is visible in mercy ministries, then it is no different to what unbelievers are doing. When we only look at the external, we miss the point of the theological weight that is behind these two words. So then, full of mercy is illustrative of a heart that is first filled with mercy before it demonstrates mercy. Full of good fruit is, is evidence of a heart that is filled with good fruits before it is seen in good fruits. That's the point. What James is after is that wisdom is evident in fullness. Those who have mercy and those who have good fruits will demonstrate mercy and will demonstrate good fruits. So wisdom, therefore, is not independent of the work of God in the heart of the believer. If you are saved, 
there must be mercy and there must be good fruits. Unfortunately, most lexicons and commentators focus only on the human element, therefore bypassing the theological weight that lies behind this word. So let me pause and deal with this idea of mercy first. What is meant by this word mercy? Mercy is firstly an act of God. That it is foremost meaning and use in the Bible. It is defined by its relationship to God. And since mercy comes from God, it is best to understand it in relationship with God. We read this passage this morning in the Bible Hour, Exodus 34, verse 6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God is defined as a God who is merciful by nature. It means to have compassion and pity. It is repeated in Deuteronomy 4.31 in reference to the nature of God and His compassionate commitment to His people despite their failure. Despite the fact that they've turned on Him and sinned against Him, He will not abandon them and destroy them. God's mercy and compassion stems from a devotion to Himself first. And then the commitment to his bond or covenant. So even though they spurned him, even though they do not show love to him, God shows compassion and mercy to them. Turn over to Nehemiah. I want to show you this connection. If I ask you to define mercy, I will probably get the generic definition, which is okay, which which includes... Mercy is that which God withholds from us. And that that is fine. It it captures the idea of um, mercy. Listen to how Nehemiah says it in chapter 9, verse 17. I'm going to read from verse 16. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously, And stiffened their neck. And they did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey. And were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. And they stiffened their neck. And appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive. Gracious and merciful. Now, take note of this. Ready to forgive. And so the verb carries over. Ready to forgive. Ready to be gracious. Ready to be merciful. Gracious and merciful. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And did not forsake them. That's what mercy does. 
That's what mercy is. Despite, despite them stiffening their neck and despite them refusing to bow before God as their only true king and leader, God still shows mercy to them. He still is willing to forgive, still willing to be gracious, still willing to be merciful. In fact, those three elements, forgiveness, uh, grace, grace, and mercy, is balanced by these two. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Even when they made the golden calf, God shows mercy. In fact, that's what he explains to them Later on, mercy is explained by God's devotion to his people despite their disheartening devotion to themselves. Go over to Psalm 86, verse 15. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious. Listen to the familiarity here. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Where does David get that from? From scripture. Turn to me, O gracious, and be gracious to me and give strength to your servant. And save the son of your maid servant. Be gracious. Grace and mercy are twins of God's reaction and demonstration to man. They are explained by God with a holding the rightful wrath while giving what we don't deserve. The two work together as God shows mercy by withholding wrath. He demonstrates grace by giving us what we don't deserve. God's mercy is intimately connected to His love, His patience, and His forgiveness. In Daniel 9, you can write this down, 9, 18 through 19, Daniel confesses that Mercy is undeserving. Considering that we have sinned and we have turned our backs on you, we don't deserve your mercy. And so he still asks for mercy. In the midst of destruction, Jeremiah looks at Jerusalem and he says, your mercy is unending. We know that song, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercy never comes to an end. They are what? New every morning. <clears throat> Love, mercy, and grace, God's patience and forgiveness all work together in terms of how he needs to respond to man. Mercy, mercy is possessed by God before it is demonstrated by God. Consider this. Jesus is called our merciful high priest. Why does he have to be merciful? Because we are sinful. We pursue our sin more than we pursue our Savior. 
The same truths which is evident about God being merciful is spoken about Jesus who is merciful. So James, when he writes about mercy, he's not ignorant of the reality of the progressive nature of Old Testament truths. They, as Jews, know this. They know what it means that God is merciful, and so they know what it means when God requires mercy of us. So mercy, as you understand it, should first be taken in terms of how God demonstrates mercy to man before we think of how mercy is seen in man's relationship with mankind. Sadly, the focus is too easily defaulted to a man-centered theology. Mercy ministries and mercy dominate the idea when it comes to this passage. Yet that is not what James is after. Mercy is not just meeting people's needs. That is such an anemic understanding of what this word mercy means. We lose the weight of God's response to sinful man, frail beings, stubborn hearts, incapable of pleasing him. God's response to man in that state is that I have mercy on you and I show grace to you even though you don't deserve it. When we focus only on the demonstration of mercy, we miss that weight. See, God responds to us in mercy as he sees us in our state of need. The first need that God sees is our spiritual need. Therefore, understanding what God does in response to man's weakness, man's sinfulness, man's inability, and how he responds in mercy to that, sets up our understanding for how we need to treat one another. God withholds wrath and demonstrates grace. Withholds what we rightfully deserve and gives us what we don't deserve. Is it starting to make sense what God requires of us in mercy? It stands to reason that when God gives wisdom and he requires mercy in that wisdom, that is not merely expecting us to have a mercy ministry but he's expecting us to share his heart to failing, undeserving, incapable, sinful beings. God's love, God's grace, God's mercy are all intertwined in the demonstration of patience and long-suffering with his people. So when James says, that wisdom is full of mercy. He's making a connection to wisdom coming from God above and therefore coming from God, it is full of this. It is full of what God naturally does in his relationship to us as sinners. Now why full of mercy? Well, first of all, because it was an experience. Before it's an expression. You receive mercy. So therefore you should be full of mercy. 
Did God not show mercy to us? Those who receive mercy must demonstrate mercy. Those who have an understanding of what God did for them should demonstrate a likewise mercy to those who do things to them. Now, keep that in mind. Go to Matthew 18. We know this passage in terms of how it relates to a sinning brother. And I believe we have covered this quite substantially in this church. Verse 15 through to 20 deals with an offense where a brother sins against you and you go and you forgive him if he repents. So Peter, understanding the weight of this, says in verse 21, Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy times seven. Or seventy-seven times. So as many times as he comes back, Peter, you go and forgive him. Now, the illustration. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wishes to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, um, when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and that all that he had and payment to be made. So in payment of his debt, he's going to be put into prison and his whole family so that the payment could be paid up. In other words, he's never going to pay it off. He's stuck in jail. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of the pity, mercy for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and seized him and began to choke him. <laughs> so funny. You understand the context here? He owes a thousand and this guy owes him a hundred. He's obviously trying to make his money back. So he sees the first guy that owes him. He grabs him by the neck and says to him, pay me back. Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him. Have patience with me and I will pay you. Exact same words. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. How can he pay the debt when he's in prison? Can't. The very same thing that would have happened to him, he did to another person. When this fellow uh, serve, when his fellow servants saw that he, what had taken place, they, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then the master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, 
I forgave you all the, that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him up to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. In other words, that's not going to happen. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Wow. What a lesson. Peter understood the weight of forgiveness in the Matthew 18 passage. And we often miss that. Jesus says to him, as many times as he comes to you, you forgive him if he repents. You forgive him when he comes back. You forgive him if he's sincere. You forgive and forgive and forgive. Why? Because that is what your father has done for you. So the analogy here is not so much about the unwilling to forgive slave. But the fact that you've received mercy, you've received forgiveness, you've received grace from a gracious, loving, patient God. And so now you do likewise. In fact, the stark contrast here is the amount that he owed and the amount that he was owed is so drastically different. It is laughable. In other words, when God forgives, he, he forgives greatly. When God shows mercy, He shows mercy greatly. Why? Because we sin against a high and a holy God. And yet when we are sinned against, it is a sinner that sins against you, yet we are not willing to forgive and show mercy. God, who is rich in mercy and with His great love with which He has loved us, saved us. That is what mercy does. It forgives the debt, moves beyond the offense, and treats the sinner as if they have never sinned against that person again. That is what God did in Christ. Paul in Timothy 3 verse 5 says, He saved us by His mercy. Mercy speaks of compassion. Mercy speaks of forgiveness. Mercy speaks of patience. If you understand what God did for us in Christ Jesus, then the demonstration of mercy should be an easy thing. In the context of James, he's talking about those who show partiality, those who, who prefer the rich over the poor, those who separate themselves from those who are not like them. Those who use hurtful words against those whom God loves. That is not mercy. Mercy is not only possessed by God and demonstrated by God, but it's also required. By God. Luke 6 36 says this Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Yes, mercy has a relational element, but it's not mercy ministries as we think. 
Mercy has to do with being sinned against, with having an offense committed against you. And your love and your patience and your forgiveness is long-suffering. You demonstrate mercy to them because you understand what God has done for you in Christ. That's what mercy is. Mercy is not only concerned about the practical need. That may be an element uh, uh, in it. But that is not what James is talking about. He's talking about this relational element where you've received mercy. Now demonstrate mercy to those who need mercy. In fact, it is pretty obvious that he's talking about the relational element. Because everything in this context in verse 17 relates to a relational element. Peaceable. Gentle. Open to reason. Full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. James wants these people to respond to one another as God has responded to them. So if you have been given mercy, if you have received mercy, then do not hold back on mercy. That's the point. The possession of mercy must be demonstrated. In mercy. As I've mentioned before, when we only think of the mercy ministry aspect of it, the outworking of it, we miss the theological weight that lies behind it. Mercy with regards to man is firstly an expression of love. Mercy with regards to man is also concerned with someone else's good. Mercy with regards to man is the antithesis of selfish ambition and pride. Mercy is not blind to the sin, but forgives the offense. Mercy fundamentally flows from a relationship with God. That element is demonstrated in this last phrase here. Good fruits. Good fruits. God expects His people to show mercy because they have received mercy. Secondly, wisdom is not only full of mercy, but it's also full of good fruits. What are these good fruits? Give me a couple of moments and I'll finish with a story. I said to you when I started that there are two elements that relates to the nature of God, which is mercy, and then the words of Jesus, which is obviously good fruits. How do I know that these are the words of Jesus? Well, in all of Scripture, these two words appear together only on the lips of Jesus. Matthew chapter 7. And so somehow James knows these words. And he relates what he expects from God's people to what Jesus expects from those who are his. Matthew 7 verse, I'm going to read from 15 through to 19. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? The answer is what? No. 
So, every healthy tree bears good fruit. Every healthy tree. What's Jesus talking about? The state of the heart is made manifest in the fruits that it bears. Every healthy tree bears good fruit. But the diseased tree, bad fruit. What is the context? False teachers. A false teacher is a liar and a deceiver and one that will mislead God's people. He will steal their money and he will live in immorality. Why? Because the heart is bad. The fruits are bad because the heart is bad. I have no sympathy for any false teacher. I do have sympathy for those who are deceived and who are in that movement. Notice what it says in verse 19. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Jesus clearly makes a distinction between those who have a heart that has been changed and bear the fruit in keeping with that heart that has been changed. Now listen to verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Is there a connection? By all means there is. Jesus is explaining what good fruits look like. It is those who do not just say, Lord, but live out the words of Jesus Christ, who follow through on his commands. How do I know that this is connected? Look at verse 24. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a what? Wise man. Jesus connects wisdom with salvation and good fruits. Jesus is saying that if you are saved, you have a good nature that has been given to you, and as a result of that, you will have good fruits. And so this man who is wise, he built his house on a rock, and when the storms come, his house does not fall away. In other words, what Jesus is after is the one who hears the words of God Response to the words of God because he's got a heart that has been changed by the word of God. Whereas those who do not respond to the word of God do not have a heart that has been changed by the word of God. So let me bring this together. Those who have mercy have received mercy. That's relational. God gives them mercy, bestows mercy on them, and so he expects mercy from them. Those who are full of good fruits have a good heart that God has given to them. He bestows the capacity to demonstrate good fruits. And so he expects from them what? Good fruits. So James is well within his right to say that wisdom is full of mercy and is full of good fruits. In other words, if you have wisdom, you will manifest it in mercy and good fruits. Jesus is not impressed by our intention. God is not after what you desire, but rather what you live for. What you sacrifice for. Are fruits important? Absolutely. 
Repentance requires fruit, Matthew chapter 3 verse 8. Re regeneration manifests in fruit, Matthew chapter 12, 33. Recognition of fruit are essential because of the distinction between a false prophet and a true follower of Jesus Christ. Are fruit important? Absolutely it is important. Verbal profession of knowing God means nothing if there's not a heart that has been changed by the word of God. I have proof of that in James, but I don't have any time. So let me end with this. I read recently in one of my devotions, Psalm 29. You probably know that verse. The fool has said in his heart, what? There is no God. Then if you read the next line, it says that there is no good in them. They move away from righteousness. Listen to this again. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. In other words, his lips may say a different thing, but his heart has denied the existence of God. And so his life demonstrates that. That is a fool. That is the opposite of a wise man. A wise person, according to Jesus, listens to his words, obeys his words, and demonstrates the fruit of wisdom. If you are a person that merely speaks of your relationship with God, but there's no demonstration of a relationship with God, you are not saved. And you need to repent and become God's child. I think of so many actors, sportsmen, people who regularly attend church and even this church and claim their love for God. But they deny in their hearts that God has any absolute authority over their lives. You need to be saved. Full of good fruits and mercy points to the fact that God has given a harvest to the heart that becomes manifest in reality. True wisdom is the outworking of the knowledge of God in fulfilling God's way, walking in God's will, and obeying God's word. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful to you that you are such a gracious and merciful God abounding in loving kindness and steadfastness. Father, have mercy on us. We all know our own hearts and our shortcomings, and we do not demonstrate the mercy that you show to us, to others. We do need you, Father. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Now teach us patience, grace, and mercy. Grant us wisdom that we may honor you for your glory and your majesty alone. Amen.